Welcome to the People Data for Good podcast. I'm Al Adamson, and today I had the great pleasure of speaking with a longtime friend and OG in the space of people analytics, Gene Peace. Uh, Gene has been an entrepreneur. He's been a leader in our field for going in excess of two decades. Uh, beyond that, and more importantly, he is an extraordinary human being. Let me say that again, an extraordinary human being. And so not only will you learn about the field and its evolution, as well as where it's going, but a bit about him. And he shares his personal story, his struggles and his inspirations. And so I thank him personally for sharing like he did. And I certainly know that you will enjoy and be inspired by our discussion. So again, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening and uh, hope you enjoy. Hi, welcome back. Gene, how are you doing? Hey, Al. Great. How are you doing? Uh, good to see you. Hey, great seeing you as well. And uh, hopefully we'll be in person here before too long. Uh, I'm going to get down to Los Angeles at the end of May. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you in person. But in the meantime, you know, we're here to talk about you, your story, and what you think about the world of people analytics and the future of work. So for those who don't know Gene Peace, the, those few people, would you share a little bit about who you are and, you know, how you got into this field? Yeah, I... Um... I've been a, prior to getting into this field, I was a small to mid cap CEO um, for a variety of companies, three or four companies at, at a, uh, through the middle of my career. And I was an out of work CEO in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and didn't want to move, made a deal with my family and my two kids to not move them again. Um, and they were in grade school um, so I was an out of work CEO in a pretty small town, a great community, but a very small town, Chapel, North Carolina, and hung out at Consulting Shield, which a lot of ex CEOs do, and bumped into some scientists at Duke University that were trying to apply literally predictive analytics to training investments. And I thought it was not only a fabulous idea. Um, but I thought it could solve a lot of problems when I dug into the training industry. And this is in 2003, 2004. So goes way, way back. If you think about um, analytics being applied to, to humans at that point and fell in love with the idea and went in and did some consulting. And in a very short period, six weeks or so, quit my consulting practice, joined full-time, wrote a check, and became CEO of this fledging little company that was trying to literally apply predictive analytics to training investments. And when I dug into the industry, I thought it was so obvious because the, the, the whole industry at the time was being measured by surveys, this Kirkpatrick system. And you would take training and then we would we would survey you and you would tell us, do you think it had impact? And then some people even tried to put an ROI on people's opinion to get the ROI of the investment. And I thought that was just ridiculous in this day and age because I knew predictive analytics was being used in lots of parts of the business, not being used in the human capital part. So I thought, this is so obvious 
great idea. Let's let's do it. So we went out and attempted to do the work, but really had trouble finding people that wanted that work done. The training industry, number one, didn't want to be measured. And two is was very comfortable using survey-based methodology to get to what they were hopefully trying to get to was business impact. But we somehow pioneered help. We were one of the pioneers and we had all kinds of ups and downs, Find some, found some early clients to keep us alive, uh, went several years with no income, um, refinanced our houses and all that stuff that entrepreneurs do. But somehow we felt we were really onto something that was important. And even though we didn't have very many early wins, um, in fact, I bet I talked to 30 people, every 30 people before we found one that even thought the work was real and they might have an interest in, in hiring us. But we persevered for some crazy reason. Um, and when we were really broke and I couldn't get an audience speaking on stage because I didn't have a PhD and our company wasn't Deloitte or Accenture or mm. um, I ended up submitting um, a outline for a book to Wiley and Wiley thought it was a great idea. And we ended up writing three books on the subject and getting published. And that was really what helped us become a little bit well-known and helped us get some clients to survive. Well, let me jump in there. So, yeah, you don't have a PhD, but uh, you have a magnum cum laude from USC, <laughs> you know, uh, MBA, and you're obviously very intelligent, and you've contributed to the space, and you've inspired me over the years. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you got cred, my friend. So let's just let's just put it. There. A lot of people didn't think so. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, back yeah. then, as you tell your story, I'm like thinking how quaint it is. And, you know, I want to continue on to, to Vestrix and all that. But before we do, will you just back up a second and tell us how you got into this field? How, why did you go to USC in the first place? I know you went to the University of you know Cincinnati. Did you grow up in that area? Tell us a little bit about your story before we yeah. get into the nuts and bolts. I'm a builder. And if you go all the way back in my childhood, um, I grew up in a suburb of Toledo, Ohio in the 50s and 60s, very safe. You know, it was, we'd be out all day running around and somebody's mother at, at dusk would, would yell and we'd have to come home for dinner. It was just a very easy childhood. And I, my father was an entrepreneur, was a World War II veteran. He and his uh, buddy out of World War II uh, bought a used mimeograph machine, put it in his uh, partner's mother's garage and started this little company and and um, became a very stable, moderate-sized company in Toledo, Ohio for, I think he owned it for 40-some years. And so I grew up with the dinner table, my dad would come home, always have dinner with the family, but many times would have to go back to work that night to finish. I had started when I was 11 or 10 or 11, I would go 
to his office on Saturday when he had to work and he'd put me in the art department. I had my my run of creative stuff I could do all Saturday morning while he had to work. So I, I grew up in an entrepreneurial um, environment. And so that was pretty natural to me. And I always wanted to, I was always a kid that I was taking apart radios and building blocks, putting those together. And one year I got this little, um, uh, gasoline powered car. And I took the whole thing apart and turned it into a go-kart. And so I was always kind of tinkering with stuff and ended up, um, going to architecture school at university of Cincinnati. And, and because I thought I was going to be another Frank Lloyd Wright, but I always liked building things and, 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 and solving kind of complicated problems. And that's really what architecture is. It it's, it's design thinking. Now we talk about design thinking. We didn't use those terms in the 70s when I was in school, but it was all about design thinking that you have a complicated problem and there's no right solution. You know, you could put 20 architects on the same project and you'd end up with 20 different solutions. And they're not necessarily better than others. They're just different. So I kind of fell into creating things early, got an early, my first degree. And in that program, it was a six-year program. And two years of it, every other semester, we had to go to work in the field as part of the degree. So I, I had two years of work experience when I graduated. And I had worked for some great architects, but kind of consistently, they weren't very good business people. We'd, we'd work like crazy and work seven days a week for a month and finish a project and then come into the office and they're kind of like, well, we're we're working on the next project, but we haven't landed it yet. So they, they, they were more, art, the ones I worked for were more artists than pure businessmen. So when I got out of school and worked for a couple of years, I decided to get an MBA because of the business side. I didn't have any, any experience or education on the business side. Hmm. And so I thought an MBA would be a good way to do that. And I picked USC because they had one of the very, very earliest entrepreneur and venture management programs in the country. And so I was able to focus my second year for the most part on entrepreneurship. And, and that was really fun for, for me. So I knew I kind of wanted to, I, I never felt like I really wanted to get a job and think about a pension and be there a long time and work my way up the food chain. Um, and so when I got out of school, I kind of bounced around a little bit. Well, and I consumer products and lasted about, two or three years at all these large companies I went to work for. Well, let me jump in there because yeah. yeah, if I'm listening to you and your story as a builder, as a creator, as a learner, I am thinking about not only the history of our space, that being people analytics and HR and HR tech, but really where we are now and where we're heading. And, and bear with me on this because uh, I, 10 plus years ago, it's probably longer. I had a slide build 
And it was a building. It was the Empire State Building, actually. No, it wasn't. It was the Chrysler Building. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> all, all New Yorkers just threw stuff at me. Um, but anyway, it was the Chrysler Building. And uh, my contention was in that build is that we did not know what we were building. Therefore, we didn't know how to build it. We didn't have a vision for people analytics and the value, how it connected in the processes. Therefore, we didn't know how to build it. We were just kind of... Uh, building the foundation and we had no idea of where we were going upwards or out. And so it was you know, kind of building the plane in the air, so to speak, to draw another mm -hmm. metaphor. So in terms of architecting, you know, how people analytics is actually going to take hold, you eventually founded Vestrix and then were able to sell that. And, you know, by that's very, definition, it was a value to someone. So my pointed question is, you know, how much did you have to help form the vision for what this structure was going to be, this building was going to be, the solution was going to be, so you can help people understand the process by which to build it in their organization? Well, for me, um, I had had 16 or 18 years as CEO experience between when I got out of college and after I'd worked for a little while and before I, I kind of fell into this new field, I'd been a CEO at small to mid cap companies for 16 years or so in three or four different companies. And so I had a very strong point of view when we were thinking about the measurement of training are really trying to find out a true business impact not an assumptive, not someone's opinion, but what was the true ROI of a training investment? And then we discovered, more importantly, the ROI was important, but really finding out where it was working and where it wasn't, what we called opt optimizing the investment, the optimization of it, so that we could figure out what groups it worked for and where it didn't work. So you could fine tune the training investment as you deployed it. And so for, for me, it was all about trying to figure out this very fuzzy idea and making it concrete of what's the return on the investment of a training program. Uh, pretty simple proposition. But what I was fighting, and I, to some degree, I still read about it, and it's, you know, people are saying we have to figure out business impact. I'm so beyond getting to business impact now. But that's where it started, was me as a CEO, not coming from a support service or HR. I was coming from the view of the board and the investors and the CEO of, we're going to spend a million bucks. What do we expect to get out of it? And then how do we measure it and, 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 and then make it better, you know, improve it. There's not every, you know, as you know, a hundred people get any intervention, not everybody reacts equally to it. That 20 years ago, that was the whole concept though. Yeah, absolutely. So, if I might jump in, uh, 
speak more to beyond business impact because yeah, you know, 20 years ago is about, okay, how is this training investment going to help that particular process or that particular capability? And now it's so much more just the act of investing in people has a benefit, which formerly, uh, at least in my view, was a blind spot uh, to many that they just, you know, care to invest in their development. So can you speak to, you know, from your vantage point as a former CEO, as someone who, you know, has worked with boards, you know, what does beyond impact look like to you? Again, just about every investment we make in people doesn't happen to everybody at the same time. Hmm. That's kind of the, how these investments happen, unless you're at a pretty small company, typically, things are done by investment or by geography or by group or something. It's rare where I would give my entire employee base or the entire sales force the exact same thing at the exact same time. So using time as a help to be able to look at the view of what's happening. And so if you can figure out, and now we can, And now over the last 20 years, we've added a lot more variables we can look at. So instead of looking at just sales training, we can look at all of the other, a lot of the other things in that environment that also affect outcomes. But at the time we were trying to isolate just training to all the other stuff to see if that investment was moving the needle. And then what we learned which was obvious now, but that not everybody receives and accepts training in the same way. So we could figure out statistically what groups it was working for and what groups it wasn't. So in the second and third and fourth wave of the investment, you can keep fine tuning it. And that's the the cycle of you don't measure once you keep you just keep measuring you know if you're making investments you unless it's a asset purchase that's but from a people point of view um it needs to be kind of constant kind of kind of looking at that consistently and fine-tuning so we didn't know that at the time I mean, this is all we discovered as we did the work and went, aha, hey, look at this group. Yeah. Well, fast forward, you know, what you're talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, is, you know, the employee experience. And, you know, you have all these touch points. You have surveys, of course, but you also have, you know, performance management discussions and ratings. And you have, uh, you might have, uh, even your communication now, you know, through ONA technology. So, you know, we can really understand how people are experiencing these mm-hmm. training interactions, how they're uh, experiencing these discussions with managers and team members to assess their workload and all, all down the line. So my pointed question based on what you're sharing, you know, you've been through the journey over the last 20 plus years. So you quote unquote, get it. But many leaders inside of HR and out have not grown up with this. So they don't understand kind of the the uniqueness of HR data, the uh, evolution and uh, achievements that we've made over the years. So how do we then educate them 
so they can make wise decisions is my point of question. You know, what would resonated, you know, let's say you weren't in this, you know, role. I know that's kind of probably a stretch, but if you're a CEO, you know, what's going to say, Hey, you know, that's really cool. I, I need to prioritize that and make that happen. Yeah. So if I was a director of people analytics or not even that fancy of a title, I would try to find a investment that was an important investment, but it was kind of under the radar of senior management. And I would find a sponsor within the company that was very open to experimenting with their data as a proof of concept so that, and I would as quietly as I could without running it up the flagpole, any of that stuff. And this is where kind of maybe the maverick in me comes in as the entrepreneur, I would go do that project and I probably would tell my boss, but I might not even tell my boss, depending on how I felt his or her, you know, friction was to these kinds of things. And I would do a project and, and prove that it had value and that we can improve investments by doing this work. And it would be not trying to boil the ocean. It wouldn't be the most important thing. Then I would work my way up the food chain. Hmm. And I would hopefully have a partner that I had on the business side that I had talked into or supported me that would also evangelize it. That, if it's a skeptical CEO in this stuff, that's the only way I would know to do it. You can bring in case studies and all that other stuff. And that's all important work for our industry. But a lot of people, you know, and I've been in those shoes as a CEO, think their company's totally unique. They're typically not, right? But I, this won't, you know, that case study, that's really quite interesting, but it won't work here because we're different. Yeah. And, and it's really not, but... I mean, we're going through that same fight right now with the CEOs that are our age and look like us are forcing people back into the office and they don't want to go. Many don't. So it's all resistance to change that the boomer CEOs typically have. I can relate, but I have a different point of view of that. So I don't know. I, I don't know. But but it, you, the other is, if I really felt resistance, I'd leave. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, because we do know friends of ours have spent a lot of years banging their head against the wall and haven't made a lot of uh, progress in their companies because of the senior management. Yeah, absolutely. And so let me replay a couple of things just to highlight some key points. Number one, uh, these use cases that aren't with our organization, you know, might be uh, interesting, uh, but they won't grab the attention of senior leadership and you in this case, in, in large part, because you can always write it off because we are, are different. And in principle, I absolutely agree because you know, the people within an organization are going to vary um, yes, there are some salient points, organization to organization, 
but depending on the job, families, geography, the nature of the work, there, there's going to be uniquenesses that would have to be responded to. And there's internal dynamics, you know, that's unique to the organization. So in the end, a leader, I would hope, is curious about the system for which they are responsible at that point in time. And that requires somebody to research it, to study it, to, mm -hmm. to be attentive to it on an ongoing basis. So that's what I am pulling out from what you said. A couple more things, and I'm going to um, push this back to you in a form of a question. The idea that we are going to go and do a project um, kind of as a kind of skunks work project, uh, totally get that. Uh, sometimes it's warranted. However, we do have to stay within the bounds of ethics and privacy and, and all those you know, things. Mm -hmm. So my question is, from your standpoint, as you've seen and built technologies and seen them utilized, you know, what is your uh, role or position on you know, ethics and what I would call responsible use? And as specific as anything, the governance that's required, like who's in the room making these decisions from your perspective? Well, kind of what decisions? So there's, there's, you know, there's decisions that would be made around the use of data, the privacy, the transparency. I believe in transparency in these projects and, and, and or these initiatives. It's not even projects necessarily. Um, I think if you're going to staff a department that's going to be looking into people analytics, there needs to be a clear mission. There needs to be a clear understanding within the organization of who these people are, what they're doing, what what's being, um, what data is being looked at, and why it's being looked at. Um, you know, there's two paths you can go on this work. You can go the path to try to root out bad behavior and lower costs and get rid of you know the D players and. Or you can take a path to try to improve people's lives and it'll clean up some of the junk along the way, but that's not the intent. The intent is to improve people's um, work situation, improve the productivity, improve the environment for, for the employees. So I think um, there's different levels of kind of who would be involved. Um, and, and again, Al, one of the problems I have with these discussions in our industry and one of the problems I have with our case studies and most of the conversation, most of the work is around large companies mm. and they're the ones that can afford the staffs and the talent and that can do this work. Cause it's, you know, this is not simple work to do. You need some pretty specialized people to do it. Um, if you're going to be successful. Um, what I've been really focusing a lot of my thinking about the last several years has been those companies like that I ran that were mid mid size, you know, 500 to 5,000 employees, for example, not 10,000 or 100,000 or 200,000 employees. And I think so when we have these conversations, I think if I'm at a Fortune 100 versus a mid-sized company, very different, same philosophy, same ethics, 
but very different, not only problems I'm trying to solve probably, but just even the approach I have because of the size or lack of size of the organization and the resources I may not have that I afford me at a fortune 500 or 100. So I get kind of frustrated and not that this conversation, but I get kind of frustrated with a lot of this stuff in the industry because it all kind of, you know, this whole discussion we're having on remote work, I don't see a lot of conversations around those companies that have to have people in a factory and in a retail outlet and in places where you have to have employees physically doing things in, in, in specific places. It all seems to be the, um, the knowledge worker conversation that some want to go back to work and some don't, and then you get into the generational. But, but where I've been focusing a lot of my work has been these mid-size kind of manufacturing type companies that have a variety of different businesses within a business. They might have a distribution center. They probably have a warehouse. They might have a factory or two. They might have retail, you know, a whole variety of, might have some software stuff. So I, I, I don't, where I, my thinking goes, there's not a prescription. It's really a set of, I don't know, yeah. a, a set of approach ethics and whatever that would be applied differently at a different type of organization and size organization. Well, you know, thank you. yeah, thank you for saying that. And let's talk about that a little bit because I, I agree, you know, the, particularly in the people analytics workforce planning employee experience space, it's by and large, large organizations that can afford new technologies. And, you know, they have mm-hmm. people internally who can you know, do the work from a data science or building you know, perspective. But, you know, for small to mid-sized companies, uh, they're is a lot of noise around analytics. They probably have a core HR system, payroll system that has some analytics value proposition. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're probably doing a survey occasionally um, for training or onboarding or engagement or or something. Um, And now they have all this data and they're like, oh heck, you know, what do I do with it? So my question is build or buy? And, you know, does this require someone who's focused on deciding whether to build or buy and manage this ecosystem of technology and, and data? What are your thoughts from a midsize uh, company perspective? I, I think it's a combination. I think there has to be a person that's not responsible for HR that is spending full time looking at this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it could be just organizing reporting, you know, or just getting the data, you know, depending on what building blocks and the sophistication or not of the company and their systems. And then I think it's got to be uh, uh, by either consultants and or some of these um, now vendors are becoming more of a one-stop support shop. Um, for them, like one model, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, if I'm a, if I'm a company that's a smaller company and I've got obviously limited resources, I think I would do both, some combination of both. Well, that's good because I still think you need that human or small group of humans that 
understand the company, understand, you know, learn the systems where the data comes from, all that. And, and I think that needs to, that knowledge needs to stay within the, it needs to be within the company, not as a consultant. But then I would augment their work. You don't need to do this work and be a statistician or, or understand that. You need to understand how to manage them and understand what the results might be and how to interpret those from a business point of view. So um, I would do both. I would do both. I would put a small budget together for, depending on the size of the organization, a small group, a leader of that that would report to um, CHRO or VP of HR. And then I would augment it depending on budgets with um, the buy the buy portion of consultants and our and, and our software and consulting. Yeah, and just to put a fine point on that and to wrap it up is if you have the need, if you're a CHRO, CEO, head of operations, someone like that in a small and mid-sized company, it's like, all right, we have all this data. We're having struggles with retention or productivity or innovation or well-being, all this stuff, then to understand that on an ongoing basis, you need a human being to interpret the results and then interpret the data and insights. Then it invites the question, well, where are the data and insights going to come from? And that doesn't happen for free in these bunch of siloed solutions. There has to be a mechanism by which to bring them together on an ongoing basis. So yeah, I hundred percent support, you know, where you're going and you've actually been the creator of products that have done just that, that have augmented internal mm-hmm. capabilities. So we might wrap mm-hmm. back round to Vestrix and, you know, mighty you and other you know, endeavors that you've engaged in over the years. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to, let's just pick Vestrix, its core value proposition and, you know, how your customers utilized it. Yeah. So we spent 10 plus years um, trying to figure out how to do the work and always thought about building software. But when I went out, in fact, when I got involved in the original first company, we had two software engineers that were trying to build some software. And when I went out in the market <coughs> and started talking to people, excuse me, um, there was there was no need in the market for what we were trying to do. It was perceived. They just didn't want to be measured. They didn't believe the work. We weren't a big company with a big brand name. So they were skeptical of even though the scientists were at PhDs from Duke University and but now that kind of didn't matter um, so we had to learn how to do the work and it was fortunate we didn't build the software because there was probably no market at the time if you think about 2004 and five. Right. But we learned how to do the work and made a lot of mistakes along the way, but figured out our methodology and when to apply the right algorithms and all that stuff. So then 12 years in or something, we thought we could build a product that duplicated our work. So then the value proposition really was getting to a business impact and optimizing that using software instead of statisticians 
building algorithms and then getting feedback and building new ones and that whole iteration of building algorithms to 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 answer the question is not only how the investment worked but where it worked and where it didn't work so it took us 12 years or so of doing this work before we felt confident that we could attempt to build the software and when we raised some more money and high it really flipped flipped the company from a consulting company to a software company and closed our consulting division and went all in on software. We didn't know if it would work, but we thought we could and it did work. (laughs) So the value proposition was that they could do this really sophisticated work really fast without the weeks of iteration of people, statisticians building these models one after another, after another, after another. And, and then just a simple thing of pivot tables, we had data analysts that would build hundreds of pivot tables to find the six or eight that showed really strong relationships to our statisticians would then build their work around. We automated that and then um, uh, prioritized so that the highest correlated value came up first and the least correlated value came up hundredth. And so we automated this very, again, going way back, uh, we automated this very cumbersome building pivot tables project that we would have one or two uh, data analysts working full time to find the few. So all of that was automated and it, and it, you know, thank God at the end of the day, it worked. So we had six or six clients or so that was using it in beta and went out for growth capital because we were thinly capitalized and ultimate uh, found us and very quickly wrapped us up and closed on the acquisition. And that was part of couple companies, they bought Conjoy about five months after and combined those technologies into their solution today. Well, it, as a f- former analyst, thank you, <laughs> because, you know, doing that work as a manual lift on what I call an event driven basis is tough. It's not, <clears throat> pardon me, it's not fast. <laughs> We're both coughing all of a sudden. Um, I'll just cut to the end. Speed scalability and sustainability. So, you know, as an analyst, you, you can't, you know, you're aggregating data, you're analyzing, you're cleaning it, you're, you're doing all that stuff. Then you're, you're trying to package the insights then you're trying to distribute the insights and mm-hmm. it's a pain in the tail. And so, you know, these, this is where we're at, you know, we're, we're covering 20 years and a couple of minutes here. And so, you know, but the core, key takeaway for any listener and particularly if you're not in the field is that, if you're hiring somebody, a data scientist, for example, or IO psychologist or someone of that sort, and you're not empowering them with the requisite tools that's going to enable speed, uh, scalability and sustainability, then, you know, they're not going to be able to deliver. So it's an, it's necessary in my view. So, but this is your mm-hmm. podcast and I want to be mighty like you. So how about that for a segue? Uh, because this has evolved into uh 
Mighty You. So if you can uh, share a little bit about what it is and what inspired you to yeah. you know, build it. So I took a little bit of, um, and when we sold Vestrix, um, Ultimate was a wonderful company, but I, I didn't want to go to work there, to be honest. And and they knew that. So I didn't sign a non-compete. They agreed with that. I had a five or six month transition with them, which was just wonderful because our employees then, to me, got a great transition and I, I helped part of that. Um, but then I took some time off and I wanted to stay in the industry. I wanted to keep doing this work, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I thought originally I was going to build another really super sophisticated analytics product for, for HR. Um, and so I spent some time and, and, and thinking about and going to some um, conferences and did a lot of reading around the, the new technologies that I would have adopted at Vestrix if we had kept Vestrix. And that was ONA, natural language processing, uh, AI, not that I'm an expert in any of it, but I'm in the dangerous category of kind of, these are the things I think that can help solve either these problems or simplify. So I started looking at all that stuff. And then I started thinking about what it was like when I was a manager and I have never had all the way up to my ascension to CEO. I had never had a training class of any time. Once I got out of school, I was thrown into the deep end. I was promoted, never had any training, never really had a mentor that I thought really added a lot of value. Unfortunately, I wished I'd had, um, and so I thought about, boy, that was kind of hard. Some of those jobs I had were really hard. They promoted me, didn't give me much support, didn't give me any training and much guidance. And I had to kind of figure it all out. So I thought, boy, uh, I wonder what it would be like today. This was pre-pandemic. And I went out and again, talked to a bunch of people, did a bunch of reading and thought this would really be a tough to be a manager a couple of years ago, I thought would be really hard. So I thought, what could I build to, to simplify a manager's life um, in today's environment, pre-pandemic? And instead of building an analytics product, I thought if I could touch a process from hire to retire, I'd have better impact than adding a fancy, another fancy analytics tool that could help but it, it, it wouldn't be the, I wouldn't be touching an employee from hire to retire. And so looked at kind of all the processes out there, spent some trying, talking to some people and concluded performance management had the greatest opportunity to impact a person's career from hire to fire. If it's, if it's done right, looked at the current offerings and thought that the products although we're pretty good, the, the new products, the new continuous performance management products were pretty good, but they were too complicated. And I really didn't like the VC model of having a core uh, uh, system and then 
if you want engagement, you charge $3 more per person per month. And if you want skills, you charge. I really dislike that model as a user and as an employee. I, I just don't like that model, although it's the VCs love it because uh, it adds incremental income without a new customer, blah, 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 blah. I get that, but I don't think it's a very good model for users. Um, so I thought the products were very complicated. So I took the approach of, could I build a scalpel instead of a Swiss army knife for performance management? And that's was the goal and the intent, um, raise some money for some people in the industry and started, uh, went out and again, talked to a bunch of people, um, hired some of the, uh, consultants that helped were pioneers of our industry like the whole crew from HiQ um, helped design and build this product. And you wrote a nice note about them last mm -hmm. week uh, or this week, whenever it was on the LinkedIn mm -hmm. announcement. So I had some really brilliant people help me build it and started building. And, and, and when the pandemic hit was right when we had landed our first enterprise customer, and we were going to launch that spring, our, our first product live. And we launched, it was a little ugly. We went from two training sessions to like 14, took many more months, but we launched and the, the platform Mighty U has been live now at this client for well over a year. So we, we, we stabilized it, we fixed all the MVP bugs that we had and and all of that. And um, and in that time frame, the pandemic hit. So we couldn't we didn't quite know what to do with our marketing messaging because it was wrong immediately from one day to the next. Our messaging was wrong. It was really a super aggressive and against the stat, you know, it's all this. Um, so we fumbled around for a little while and still the product got stabilized. I had this great consultants that were kind of running the technology and customer adoption. Um, and then I got sick. So the pandemic hit and, um, I ended up, um, out of, you can tell I'm having trouble saying all this. But out of um, out of left field, out of a surprise, um, I was diagnosed a little over a year ago, a year and a half ago, with advanced prostate cancer, um, and immediately went into this very heavy, heavy, heavy. Uh, 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 they call it therapy, uh, regimen of drugs. So for the last year, I've been kind of hanging on. Um, but over the, towards the end of the year, I realized that I just can't, I can't run a startup with uh, the physical toll that this cancer is taking on me and the therapy. And so in the last month, we've, um, I've kind of come out of the closet with, um, I'm sick. I can't work the zillion hours I have for most of my career anymore. And I'm looking for 
some um, help with taking my platform um, to market. Um, so we're out now kind of shopping the platform we built, um, trying to find a partner to take it to market. We've gotten good feedback on it. It works. We won uh, last year uh, HR Tech Award for Innovation because we do some coaching around feedback on, on the fly. So we introduced natural language processing uh, in the flow of work. So when you give feedback to somebody, our AI is coaching you on how to give positive feedback, constructive feedback, and not biased. So we've got kind of some cool things that we built within this tool. Again, and the whole idea of to trying to simplify and uh, uh, the, the performance management process, how to simplify that and coach people to give better communication and coaching along the way. So that's kind of my, uh, my recent story. I, I'm, I'm experiencing um, both professionally and personally ground that I am not prepared for. Um, so I'm kind of figuring it out along the way. The, the good news to the story, if there is good news, is um, I live in L.A., and I had uh, three second opinions and ended up at one of the finest cancer institutes of the country or the world at UCLA. So I'm getting great treatment. We have um, stopped the disease from growing. Um, and that's the best I can ask, ask for. This disease, and I'll give a public service announcement to any, any uh, people listening to this is to get your prostate as a man checked. If you're over, if you're 40 or over, get it checked with regularity. Um, I was getting it checked with regularity and I still came out on the extreme side of the advancement of the disease when we caught it. Um, one in eight men get this disease. Um, one in every 41 men will die of the disease. Most men that get this can live a full life with either no therapy or little therapy. A few of us, small percent, get an advanced uh, case that they can't cure, but they can keep it abate, abated. So which is what we're hoping it will happen with me. Well, yeah, absolutely hoping it's going to happen with you. And thank you for sharing. And I'm sorry that struggle has uh, come upon you, but I know you and I'm for, I've known you for a long time now, and I know your resiliency, I know your creativity, and I applaud your openness and courage to, to share. And so thank you. Um, you know, personally, I'm honored that you're, you're doing so. And I think it's, it's very inspiring and, I know by doing so, you know, there's going to be many who will help. And so I will do my part to you know, be of help myself and, and, yeah, and find I others. Keep, I want to keep doing this work. This work's very important. Um, and I really enjoy it. I mean, this, this is kind of my second career. Um, falling into uh, being part of HR and um, it's important it's uh makes a difference so i, I want to keep doing it i just can't 
do it in the kind of capacity I had been previously doing it for most of my career, unfortunately. But, you know, I got to, like most of us, things, things happen that you can't control. So I've got to kind of keep, get up every day, keep putting my feet in front of each other and keep moving forward. Yes. And you do that well. And, uh, you know, I appreciate, you know, our connection and, you know, I'll say it again, is that, our community has been very tight. We started a very small community uh, 20 plus years ago, and it's grown massively, particularly mm -hmm. over the last five years. And it's been accelerated even more with the, with the pandemic. So it's not going away. And performance management by any stretch of the imagination has not been figured out. Um, so there's great opportunities. So in the balance of our time, and we probably you know, have you know eight minutes, give or take left, um, I'd love to talk about the future, not only for you and, and Mighty You, uh, but the space in general. Uh, you know, if you're advising a CHRO or a head of talent or someone like that, what would you say to him or her, you know, in terms of, you know, what to be looking for in this field? If I, I'll answer this a little differently. If I was hired as a CHRO, kind of a twist to the mm -hmm. what, what you're um, I would I would I would spend the majority of my time in two areas I would spend a lot of my time in in understanding all of the current systems and 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 and, and data ownership and all that stuff and try to find a way to simplify the 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 tools and the systems that I force my employees to use. So I would this whole EX thing I think is a wonderful idea, but I'm really not sure the industry's attacking it correctly because I'm not so sure they're really I'm not convinced they're really looking at simplicity at this point. And that's a huge point of view of mine is is just trying to simplify the things I have to do to get through the day from a organizational point of view. And then number two, I would spend the vast majority of my time coaching, training, talking to first my managers, and then the next level, whatever levels of managers I, I have influence over to communicate and how to communicate with their employees. So to communicate often and honest um, and be transparent. You know, I, I feel very strongly that if you have a six month or annual review, you should know how you're doing. I mean, I should know how I'm doing in that six month when I sit down and if I have a review with my CEO or my CHRO, because I've had communication throughout that six months on how I'm doing and how I can improve and how you can help me in, in, in blocks. So in where I've got, you know, issues. But I, I, so for me, it's, it's trying to simplify our lives and then increase in communication between humans. I think those are too critical. I think the technologies have gotten way too complicated, to be honest. Um, 
and we're not communicating often enough, not from a friendship, but from a communication of the work and how you're doing, accomplishing the work. And then obviously the personal stuff flows into that because you can't disassociate. Yeah, I, your, your point's well taken because uh, this ecosystem is ever evolving. In some cases, it's expanding appropriately. In other cases, it's, it's expanding haphazardly and causing the employee experience to be adversely impacted. Because to your point, there's so much noise and tools and, and, you know, that I'm interacting with. You know, there is, you know, the conscious creation of the employee experience, you know, is certainly warranted. And there are room for scalpels you know, these pointed technologies that, that help, you know, best of breed, if you will, uh, but not all the time, you know, so, you know, making these conscious decisions uh, with appropriate governance bodies, I think is, is critical to our, you know, earlier conversation. Um, yeah. As we start to wrap up, I mean, Gene, I can talk to you all day and, you know, I'm just, uh, no. you know, I'll just say it again. You, you know, I pray for your health and well-being and your continued success with mighty you and your other endeavors. Um, how can people learn more about what you're up to and Mighty You? Well, my, my LinkedIn is probably the the best place or easiest place to, to get a hold of me. Um, my uh, email address, my phone number, all that is on that. And I, you know, I, I don't know what the future looks like, but I'm certainly having some very interesting conversations just in the last few weeks as I've you know, let my friends like you know that I'm struggling, you know, I'm personally struggling and I need some help. And, and um, so I, I, you know, I'm very open for any kind of conversation because um, they're kind of fun. And I, uh, meeting new people in our industry is always yeah. fun. So yeah, hit me up at LinkedIn um, or send me a direct email at my personal one and all that's um, on LinkedIn. Yeah, I don't know the future either, but I do know something about the future. And that is that you're going to be at a soccer match soon. And do you want to share what your yes. shirt is all about? Well, yeah, I'm doing some advertising for Angel City FC. It's the new women's pro soccer team in Los Angeles. And it's an entirely new sports model. It's started by, founded by women. It's um, majority financially owned by women. It's 85 or 90% of their staff, their coaches, women. It's just a, a model that was started by a local venture capitalist, Natalie Portman, and a local entrepreneur, three females, thought that Los Angeles needed a women's pro soccer team and by God, they pulled off their, our first game is Friday night and they've sold more season tickets than the LA Lakers, the LA Clippers, the Rams, all of the pro sports teams, they have outsold their initial season ticket holders. So we'll, you know, it's for me, it's a fascinating study in a in a organization that's all female owned and, and you know all this information because well one is i'm a soccer um, fan particularly i'm a women's soccer fan because my go. daughter <laughs> plays soccer 
and now she happens to be the director of ticket sales for Angel There City. you go. That's what I was fishing for. Thank you for giving it to me. Heather <laughs> Pease, yeah. give her some credit. Well, there. hey, Jean, thank you for sharing. Thank you for being you. Um, here to help. Uh, you're awesome. Um, thank you for sharing. You're, you're yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Al. Really enjoyed it. Great, great catching Absolutely. up Absolutely. Well, also. see you soon, all right? You will. Cheers. See you, buddy. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about today's guest, go to pafal.net. You'll be able to see links to the bio as well as to the video of today's program. You'll also have the chance to support this podcast and other shows that we do by becoming a Pafal community member. You can also donate if you choose. What will be helpful to support Pafal, the People Data for Good Movement, and me will be to share this episode with friends and coworkers and others who might find it valuable. Finally, for updates on upcoming episodes, shows, and events, please subscribe to our newsletter at pafal.net. At the bottom, you can also see our social media presence. So please subscribe to our company page on LinkedIn. Follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. We're active as can be, and we want to provide this content to you that is timely, relevant, and actionable. So again, thank you for listening today and hope to see you soon. I also want to give a shout out to Jenna Dern, Malaz El-Sheikh, and Sarah Sparnan, who without them, this show would not happen. And now go out and make some great things happen.